Matthew recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 24, pins the following words. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Brothers and sisters, again, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God abides forever. You may be seated. Three points on your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes. You always listen a little better when you have the tip of a pen pressed against paper. Number one is this. Your eye illuminates your life. Your eye illuminates your life. Let me draw your attention to the first phrase in verse 22. Jesus simply says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body, Jesus says here. Jesus turns his attention from the comparison of two treasures in verses 19 through 21 to the comparison of two conditions in verses 22 through 24. That is the condition of either having a healthy eye or a bad eye, which for the detail type among you, which I am one of those types, you may notice that there are three sets of twos that exist in our text from last week and our text for this morning. Last week, Jesus compared two treasures. Did he not treasure on earth as compared to treasure in heaven? And in the verses before us this morning, Jesus compares two conditions of the eye, a healthy eye and a bad eye, and he compares two masters, God and money. God and money. His focus shifts from the heart last week, verse 21, to the eye this week in verses 22 and 23. The contrast is now between a person with a clear spiritual eye, with clear spiritual sight, and a person with clouded or darkened vision, clouded or darkened spiritual sight. Now, it's important to note that Jesus is looking at the same general subject here, just from a slightly different perspective. When Jesus talks about the heart last week, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And when he talks about the eye being the lamp of the body or being the light of the body or being the window through which light passes into the body, he's speaking about the same general subject. He's simply doing it from two different and distinct perspectives. Jesus was a master teacher. And he, he knows that to reinforce things in our hearts and our minds and our understanding, it's good to illustrate them. And so over and over and over again in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, we see Jesus illustrating practically spiritual truths. He did it with the heart last week. He's doing it with the eyes this week. Again, speaking about the same general subject, but from a slightly different perspective. In, in other words, the heart and the eyes, and even the mind... As you read through Scripture, the heart, the eyes, and even the mind are used somewhat synonymously across Scripture. Spiritually speaking, when our, when our hearts are set on something and when our eyes are fixed on something, we're doing the exact same three thing. We're focusing our attention on or we're focusing our affections on something. When we fix our heart on something, when we fix our eyes on something. One example of this would be in Psalm 119, uh, verse 10. You don't need to turn there. Psalm 119.10, the psalmist writes this, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. 
And then just five verses later, Psalm 119, verse 15, the psalmist writes, I'll meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your ways. I'll fix my whole heart on your precepts and then I'll fix my eyes upon your ways. The psalmist is simply saying the exact same thing from two slightly different perspectives. Well, then what does Jesus mean when he says the eye is the lamp of the body? The eye is the lamp or the eye is the light or the eye is the window of the body. Let me submit to you that Jesus is not simply trying to impart some lesson in ophthalmology this morning. Okay, There's a very practical spiritual truth that Jesus is teaching us here. What he's doing is he's actually using a well-understood Hebraism, or he's actually using a well-understood thought train to Jews of his day. Because the Jews of Jesus' day thought of the eye as being the window to the soul or being the window to the rest of the body. So Jesus is simply using their own illustration as a way to illustrate a very important spiritual truth here. When Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body, he means that the eye functions much like a window that lets light into a body. Track with me here for just a second. Just as the amount and the quality of light that comes into a room depends on the condition of the window through which it passes, so the condition of the eye, the spiritual eye, determines the quantity and the quality of spiritual light that enters into the body. You see, if a window is clear, then light fills the room. But if the window is dirty or clouded, the light is hindered from entering into the room. Jesus says the same is true of us. The same is true of our spiritual eyes. They can be dirty. They can be clouded such that light does not pass through. And if that's the case, we're left in darkness. Now, let me say this. Jesus is speaking to believers in this text. And so when you see uh, the term darkness, oftentimes we think, and Jesus used the term darkness often to speak about unbelievers, that they're in spiritual darkness, they cannot see, there's scales over their eyes, uh, the, the, the evil one has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see the truth of the hope of the gospel, okay? So when we see blindness or darkness, oftentimes in Scripture, it does refer to those who do not know Christ savingly. But Jesus is writing to believers here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, as a matter of fact. And so when we see the term darkness here, we're not talking about comprehensive darkness as in lostness. We're talking about the inability to see and perceive spiritual truth. Not in totality, but to some degree and some measure. What Jesus is saying here is that just as a window can be clouded, just as a window can be dirty, thus preventing light from entering into a room, so our eyes can become bad. They can become diseased and unhealthy such that the light of spiritual truth does not pass into our hearts. Think about your eyes for just a second here, friends. All sorts of bodily functions are aided by the ability of the eyes to see. The eye is one of the chief channels of information for the rest of the body. I mean, the eye discovers for the body. The eye directs the rest of the body. The eye warns of danger. The eye puts things into perspective. The eye brings about awe. The eye is what causes us to stand in wonder oftentimes. The eye is attracted to beauty and it's repulsed by decay. And so when we speak about the eye here, the eye refers to how we view and perceive and evaluate. So if we have a healthy eye... Or if we have healthy spiritual vision, our spiritual lives will be full of light. 
and thus we'll be able to rightly focus on God, which brings the treasures of earth. Let me connect this back to last week now. If we can, if we can see properly, if our eyes are clear, if they're not clouded, then we will have the ability to see and understand treasure and to put it in its right perspective. In other words, we won't be as easily gripped by materialism. We won't be as easily gripped by materialism. Likewise, if on the other hand, your eye is spiritually unhealthy, clouded by a preoccupation with material things, and it doesn't matter how, much, how bright the light is, uh, you have a very difficult time trying to discern uh, how to choose the right treasures. Okay, friends? Your eye illuminates your life. Is your eye clear or is your eye clouded? That is point number two, by the way. Point number two on your outline, your vision is either clear or it's clouded. Those are the two options that Jesus gives us in our text here. Let me turn your attention to the back half of verse 22 on into verse 23. Jesus speaking here, this is what he says. So, in other words, since your eye illuminates your life, so, or as a result, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. You see, now that Jesus has explained the function, the function of the eyes, that is to let spiritual light in, he moves to discuss the condition of our eyes. What condition are they in? Are they healthy or are they bad? Are they clear or are they clouded? If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light, Jesus says. Likewise, if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So what does Jesus mean by the distinction of healthy eyes or healthy spiritual sight and bad eyes or diseased spiritual sight? Well, let's look at healthy eyes here for just a minute. Jesus speaks first about healthy eyes. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? Which, let me say this. Verses 22 and 23 are somewhat of a challenge to interpret. I mean, as you look at the, at the verses that came before, we, we can understand the connection of the heart to the treasure. Okay? And we can even understand verse 24 pretty clearly. I mean, one of Jesus' most heralded statements is, you can't serve God in other things. It's as true today as it was today that it rolled off Jesus' lips. We understand those two things. But sandwiched right in between those statements is this somewhat obscure couple of verses speaking about spiritual sight. How, how do they fit? What does Jesus mean and how does it relate to the material world and our draw or our attraction to it when Jesus speaks about healthy eyes and bad eyes? Well, glad you asked. The word healthy here, it's the Greek adjective haplous, and it means to be single or to be clear, to be single or to be clear, and in some cases it refers even to generosity, to generosity, and so let's look at how each of these uh, might look if, if we flesh out these, these meanings here. The meaning of single or clear, and then in some cases, generosity, as Jesus is speaking about the healthy eye here. If the healthy eye carries the primary idea of singleness and clarity, then we could say that the healthy eye, because it sees clearly, has a single-minded focus on God. 
Just like we can be singular in heart, we can have a singular focus. And if a healthy eye carries the primary idea of singleness or clarity, then it would have the idea of having a single-minded focus on God. It's singularly focused on serving Him, on glorifying Him, on honoring Him. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10.31, probably a familiar text to all of you. He said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's from Alpha to Omega, from A to Z, everything in between, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Even the mundane things like eating and drinking. Let me commend a wonderful, super brief article to you. You can Google this and find it. John Piper wrote an article some years back called Drinking Orange Juice to the Glory of God. But we forget. His whole, his whole premise is even in the small things, even in the mundane things, even in the everyday things, even in the things that we tend to forget or take, it, uh, take for granted, we are to do those things for the glory of God. A single-minded focus does everything for the glory of God. A single-minded focus sees the treasures of earth and puts them in their right perspective and is not tempted to make them the treasure of his or her heart. It's a single-minded focus here. The person with healthy eyes is careful not to let God's good gifts eclipse the glory of the giver. Boy, we come dangerously, dangerously close to that so often, do we not, friends? We let the glory of the good gift eclipse the glory of the giver. The person with healthy eyes sees his worldly possessions in their true light and enjoys them without doing what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, and that is that we don't put our hope in them. He said, encourage the rich, challenge the rich, charge the rich in this present age, which I said last week, if you can remember, that is every single one of us, by the way. By the world's standards, every single one of us is incredibly, incredibly wealthy. Paul told Timothy, charge the rich in this age not to hope in their riches, but to put their hope in God. The man or the woman with a healthy eye, if healthy primarily means singular or clear, means that he's able to or she is able to put into perspective those worldly possessions and is not tempted or is not as tempted to put their hope in them. But if the adjective healthy, haploos, carries the idea of generosity, which I'm going to argue this morning that I think that's the primary emphasis uh, that Jesus is placing upon the word here. Uh, It carries the idea, this adjective carries the idea of singleness, clarity, and then third, generosity. And I want to submit to you that I think that's what Jesus is pressing in on in our text here. If the healthy eye is a generous eye, then Jesus seems to be teaching that a generous spirit regards our money as his money, and thus we give freely. Thus, we share what we have. I mean, what we saw this morning, what we saw just a few minutes ago, was an expression of giving freely, of sharing our possessions, sharing with those who have need. If this is the case, if if the healthy eye is a generous eye, then we can determine if we have clouded spiritual vision by the extent to which we're generous with the goods that God has blessed us with. You remember last week I mentioned that God prospers you and God prospers me not to raise your standard of living, but rather to raise your standard of giving. And God has blessed you immensely, not so that you can run out and use his good gifts to bolster your your own ego, 
and to, to put in the account of the bank of earth but that you could share, that you could raise your standard of giving. You see, a generous spirit, a giving spirit, demonstrates that we have a loose grasp on material possessions in this world. I'm not so white-knuckled on my possessions that I'm willing to be generous with them. The healthy eye. It belongs to the person whose motives are pure, who has a single desire for God's interest, and who is willing to accept Christ's teaching. For this person, his whole life or her, her whole life is flooded with light. Let's talk about this bad eye for a second. And here's, uh, here's why, or here's how I'll make the argument that I think that generosity is probably the better interpretation here. Jesus compares the healthy eye to the bad eye. Okay? The word bad here, it's the Greek adjective paneros carries the idea of evil or wicked or greed or stinginess. You see the comparison between those two adjectives in the original Koine Greek there? So you have a single-mindedness, whereas the bad eye would speak about a double-mindedness or double vision. That's one eye in heaven and one eye on the things of earth. Friends, uh, let, me, let me illustrate this for you for just a second here. I'm going to encourage you to do something that mom always told you not to do, Okay? Hold your Bible or your notes in front of you as if you were going to read them. Cross your eyes for a second and try to read it. It doesn't work, does it? I mean, trying to keep one eye in heaven and one eye attached to earth, it doesn't work. It'll drive a man mad. It's because it wasn't what you were designed for. So if the healthy eye is a single-minded eye and the bad eye speaks of double vision and the, the, the healthy eye speaks about generosity whereas the bad eye speaks about greed and stinginess, I think we can see where we're going here. Interestingly enough here, uh, the word paneros, bad, bad eye, is actually the word where we get our English word pornography. It's a bad eye. An unhealthy eye. I'm persuaded that Jesus' emphasis on the materialistic greed of the bad eye is what is is in view here. And I think we can see this clearly, no pun intended, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. If you have your Bible there in front of you, just turn over real quick. I'm not going to read all 16 of these verses. Matthew chapter 16, or sorry, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. I'm not going to read all 16 verses in their entirety. I'm going to summarize it for you here. This is a familiar story. But I think we can see here uh, the the connection to the bad eye that Jesus speaks about uh, and greed and stinginess and white-knuckledness to the things of earth. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. This This is Jesus telling a parable about hired laborers and a vineyard. Again, probably a familiar story to many of you. But let me paraphrase here. Jesus begins the parable by comparing the kingdom of heaven to a master who went out early in the morning and hired some laborers to work in his vineyard. Seems pretty straightforward so far, does it not? And the master found some willing fellows and he agreed upon a wage of a denarius a day and he sent them out to work. But then he comes along and he makes several other hires that day. Jesus says that the master hired more laborers at the third hour, at the sixth hour, at the ninth hour, and at the eleventh hour. So now there are numerous laborers working in the man's vineyard who were all hired at different times of the day, but they were all promised the exact same wage, a denarius a day. Tracking with me here? Jesus goes on to say that at the end of the day, 
At the end of the day, the master told his foreman to call the laborers and to pay them their wages. And this is where we see the condition of the eye revealed here. The foreman started with those hired last. That's those hired at the 11th hour, somewhere between 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock p.m. They didn't put much work in. He calls them first, and he pays them a denarius. You can almost see the excitement of the first laborers that are hired now. I mean, they're going like this. It's going to be payday. If they got paid a denarius, then what does that mean for me? We've worked longer. We've worked longer. But as the first group watches the second group be called forward, and receive their wage, those that were hired at the, na- the ninth hour and worked longer than the last group, they notice, now wait a second here. Two plus two is not equaling four. That group was paid the exact same amount as the last group. And so all of a sudden, the excitement of the first group now turns to a scowl. When those who were hired first come, they thought to be paid, or they expected rather to be paid more, but they were paid the exact agreed upon wage, a denarius a day. And they grumbled. If you look at your Bible there, they grumbled, saying, We've been out in this scorching heat all day, and you paid us the same as those who only worked an hour. Look at the master's reply here. He says, I've done exactly what I said I was going to do. We agreed, so take your denarius and be on your way. And it's what the master says next that gives us some understanding about the eye. Look at verse 15. The master asks, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And here's a phrase. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Are you frustrated? Are you angered? Are your feathers ruffled by my generosity? Now, keep, keep that mind engaged with me for just a second here, okay? Unfortunately, most of our modern translations have kept a paraphrase here instead of a literal translation of the Greek. The Greek, which is probably most likely footnoted in your Bible, you probably see a subscript there after, or do you begrudge my generosity? Check there, see if you see a subscript or superscript, and look down at the bottom of your page. You probably see there what is a literal translation of the Greek, which is this, or is your eye bad because I am good? That's what the master replies. You see, they were greedy. They looked at the ones who, who were hired last, who got paid denarius, and they thought they should be paid more. They expected more. They were greedy. They were stingy. Their eyes were fixed on the temporal treasures of this world. And so the master looks at them and he says, you have an eye problem. Your eye is bad, and it's demonstrated by the fact that you begrudge my generosity. That's why I say that a healthy eye, I think, carries the primary translation of a generous eye, whereas a bad eye carries the primary translation of a stingy eye or an ungenerous eye. You see, materialism shuts out the light of Christ, and it clouds the way that we look at life. Although Jesus didn't condemn our having earthly possessions, he did warn against us storing up treasures on earth and the possibility of losing spiritual vision because of our preoccupation with them. And so let me ask you this, friends. How's your vision? How's your vision? Is it clear? Is it it singularly focused? Is it generous with your earthly possessions and treasures? Or is your eye clouded? Do you have a bad eye? Do you have double vision? 
trying to put one eye in heaven and one eye on the things of earth? Are you stingy? Are you greedy? And are you tight-fisted with your treasures and your possessions? How is your vision? How is your vision? You see, one of the saddest things that, uh, that I think we see this side of eternity, amongst many other sad things, is that the person who thinks they're full of light is full of darkness. That's one of the saddest things, is that a person who's really full of darkness thinks, thinks that they are full of light. Jesus says, for this person, the darkness is very great. You see, the reality is, is that most of us who have been overcome with materialism don't even know it. We're self-deceived. You see, that's, that's the choking, blinding power of the things of earth, is that it gets us in its grips and we hardly even know we're being pressed in the vice. We hardly even know that we've been taken. We think we have a handle on our possessions, but our possessions and our want for more control us like the strings of a puppet. Friends, how is, how is your vision? How is your vision? Here's, here's the simple principle here. The way that we look at and use our treasure is a sure barometer for our spiritual condition. The way that we look at, the way that we perceive and use our treasure is a sure barometer of our spiritual condition. Friends, how is your vision? Is it clear or is it clouded? Let me turn your attention to number three on your outline this morning. You cannot serve two masters with undivided devotion. You cannot serve two masters with undivided devotion. Let me turn your attention to verse number 24 now. Back to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this. No one can serve two masters. For he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. No one can serve two masters. This is perhaps one of Jesus' most memorable statements. We tend to cling to Jesus' memorable statements, right? Like, judge not, lest you be judged. We'll be there in just a handful of weeks, by the way. We'll unpack that text together. Probably one of Jesus' most taken out of context sayings. But no one can serve two masters. Perhaps one of Jesus' most memorable statements, and it's as true today as it was the day that he spoke it. Though many try to serve both God and material possessions, failure awaits them all. Friends, take it to the bank. It's as good as gold. Mark it down. Write it down. You cannot serve God and things. You can't. Though many have tried, failure awaits them all. It's been said that a person's ultimate loyalty must converge at a single point. This goes back to uh, the potential idea of our vision being, being singularly focused, okay? A person's ultimate loyalty must cons- converge or, or must come together at a single point because to try to go two ways at once will rip a person in half. I mean, think about it. To try to go two, two ways or two directions at once will, will rip a man in half. Right down the middle. Here in verse 24, Jesus takes up the issue of allegiance and devotion. Just as we can't store up treasures both on earth and in heaven, just as our bodies cannot be full of both darkness and light, neither can we serve two masters, Jesus says. Now, notice that Jesus did not say, 
you shouldn't serve God and money. Jesus didn't say you shouldn't serve God and money. Neither did he say you must not serve God and money. Look at your Bibles, friends. He says emphatically, you cannot. You cannot serve God and money. It's not just that we shouldn't, though that's certainly true. Jesus is saying that it's impossible. It is an impossibility. You can serve one or the other, but you cannot serve them both. Notice Jesus says, you'll hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. But you cannot have singular allegiance, undivided devotion to two masters. You can serve two people, okay? Some of you might even be in a position uh, at work where you have more than one boss. You can serve two people, but you cannot serve two masters because a master demands your undivided, full, uncompromised, ongoing allegiance. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. Jesus uses some very striking vocabulary here in verse 24. He says, no one can serve. It's the Greek word doulos. As a matter of fact, it is the word that is used to describe us, believers in Christ. We are servants of Christ. We are doulos of Christ. Jesus uses that word very specifically, very thoughtfully here in verse 24. As believers, we are Christ's servants. Jesus is making the point that in the full sense of the term, to be a slave means to belong wholly and to belong fully, to belong completely. This is a relationship that cannot exist in duplicate. We either belong wholly to one owner or we belong wholly to another, but being devoted, wholly devoted to one rules out the other. What Jesus is saying here, he uses a very, very intentional vocabulary. He says you can't serve two masters. Then he uses this word masters here. It's the Greek word kurios. We should note first here that we were made to have a master. Friends, you were made to have a master. You were designed to have a master. God made you that way because he is to be our master. You see, the dilemma is that we cannot equally serve two masters. The main sense or the main idea of of the Greek word kurios here is that of the supreme one, the one who is sovereign and thus possesses absolute authority and absolute ownership, uncontested power. Jesus says you can't have two of those. You can't serve two of those. You can't serve two people who demand uncontested loyalty. It's impossible. What is the The dilemma here that Jesus gives us. Jesus uses a word that is probably translated in your Bible as money. Mammon is the Aramaic word there in your Bible. Originally meant to anything that someone puts confidence in. So it was a pretty, pretty broad term. Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. Probably says in your Bible can't serve God and money. But the original Aramaic term, mammon, was very broad in its application. It only later took on the nuance of wealth and riches and earthly goods. It was simply a designation of material value. Okay? 
Which means it's important to note that mammon in and of itself wasn't necessarily bad. Mammon isn't a negative thing. But Jesus is clearly using it in a negative context here in verse 24. Because he's using it as mammon as opposed to God. Or mammon setting itself up against God. Jesus is using it in a very negative sense here. But but mammon just referred to, to something of material value originally. Only later did it come to mean wealth and riches and earthly goods. And so in the present context, in verse 24 here, what Jesus does is he personifies mammon and wealth as if it were one's master and Lord. He personifies it. And he says you can't serve both. Pressing into mammon just a little bit more here. Mammon is anything that is accounted to us as gain. I want to kind of bring some sharpness to to our understanding of this word here. Mammon is anything that is accounted to us as gain. Remember Paul said this in Philippians 3, 7. He said, but whatever I counted gain, I I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever was gain to me, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. So mammon is anything, can be anything. And I'm going to give you some specific examples here in just a minute. But mammon is anything that could be considered gain to you. That is, whatever is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that can be considered mammon. It's anything that we put our confidence or our trust in. In other words, it's anything, absolutely anything under the sun that we would look to and turn into a functional God. That is mammon. Here are some examples here. Mammon can be your stomach. right? Philippians 3.18, their God is their belly, right? Mammon can be your stomach. Mammon can be your ease and your comfortability. Mammon can be your sleep. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 6, 9, Wake up, oh, you sluggard. Why do you sleep all the day long? Mammon can be your sleep. Mammon can be your sports. It can be your hobbies. It can be your pastimes. It can be your worldly riches. Remember James tells us in James chapter 4, Why do you say we're going to go here and there, and tomorrow we're going to make a little profit here? And James goes on and he says, You don't... You don't even know if you'll be able to go there tomorrow. Life is but a vapor that appears for a little while and then quickly vanishes. But it could be profit. It could could be your worldly riches. Mammon could be honors. It could be your status. It could be your influence. It could be receiving the praise and the applause of men. It could be pleasure. It could be relationships. It could be the pursuit of physical health. And we could go on and on and on. Mammon. Mammon can be anything which we inordinately obsess over and find our security, trust, contentment, satisfaction, worth, value, fulfillment, and everything else in. That can be considered mammon. And God is saying, you cannot serve both. You can't serve both. Anything can become mammon. And so Jesus tells us plainly, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot be equally devoted to them both. You cannot love them both the same. One or the other will always rise to the top of your affections. What Jesus is ultimately doing here is he's ultimately drawing a line in the sand. And he's looking you square in the eyes, and he's looking me square in the eyes, and he's saying, choose this day whom you'll serve. Choose this day whom you'll serve. A couple similarities between God and mammon or God and money, as it's translated in your Bible probably. And that's that God and money both grip the heart. They both grip the heart. I think about Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, right? 
in Acts chapter 5, they were affluent, they had some wealth, they were property owners. And they wanted to be involved in what was going on, they, which by the way, they were presumably converts the, the day of Pentecost. They had come to Christ and they wanted to be involved in what was going on in the local church. And so they went and sold some of their property and they were going to bring the proceeds back to the church to be used. The problem is, they didn't bring everything. They kept back for themselves a part of the proceeds. Such that, that, that Acts chapter 5 Peter looks at them and he says, why, why have you sinned against the Holy Spirit in this grievous way in keeping some of the proceeds back for yourselves? I mean, think about this, friends. Ananias and Sapphira, they did not have to sell their property. And even if they sold their property, they did not have to bring the proceeds and give it to the church. They chose to do so willingly and voluntarily. Unfortunately, the treasures of earth, somewhere in between, gripped their heart. And as they're holding it in their hands, they're thinking, I want this. I deserve this. I need this. And so they didn't bring it all. Both God and money can grip the heart. Both God and money demand comprehensive loyalty. Another similarity between God and money. Not only does God and money both grip the heart, but God and money both demand comprehensive loyalty. You see, when Jesus says that if you try to serve two masters, you'll end up hating the one and loving the other, he's using a common Semitic idiom here, okay? When hatred and love are used in this sense, to hate one thing simply means that what is loved is preferred. It's a common Semitic Jewish idiom here to speak about loving and hating. And when we say we hate something... It just means that what we love is preferred. What is hated isn't literally hated, but it's loved less. It's loved less. Jesus used the exact same expression of hating and loving when he told his disciples in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is employing the same idiom there in Luke chapter 14. And Jesus didn't literally mean that his disciples had to hate their father and their mother, for that would fly right in the face of the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother, which Jesus subsequently repeated in Matthew chapter 15. So we know that Jesus is speaking literally here when he says you'll, you'll love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. He's just saying you can't love them both equally. He's saying that when you look at them both, your love for the one should should, should look like, in comparison, hatred for the other. If you try to serve two masters, you'll end up, one will end up surpassing the other in terms of your love, and your affection for the one will make your attitude for the other look like hatred. God and money both grip the heart. God and money both demand comprehensive loyalty. But God and money both make demands upon you, and those demands are diametrically opposed. I mean, just track with me here for a second. God says, my son, give me your heart. Mammon says, no, give it to me. God says, walk by faith. Mammon says, walk by sight. God says, be humble. Mammon says, be proud. God says, set your affections on things above. Mammon says, set your affection on the things of earth. God says, be ready to share. 
Mammon says, keep it for yourself. God said, seek happiness in your creator. Mammon says, eat, drink, and be merry. God says, be content in the things that you have. Mammon says, grasp after everything that you see. God says, be anxious for nothing. And Mammon says, be anxious for everything. Which, interestingly enough, is where we're going to turn the page to next Sunday. Worry and anxiety. If our hearts and our eyes are tethered to the things of earth, one of the greatest warnings, one of the greatest red lights to that is worry. You will always worry about the things that you fear can be taken from you or might be lost. And I think it's important to note here that, again, God isn't against money. God isn't against wealth. I mentioned that last week. But at the same time, we should be warned lest we think we can rub shoulders with the world and not cave in to worldliness. That's called foolishness. If we think we can rub shoulders with the world but yet keep ourselves free from worldliness, that's foolishness, friends. Foolishness. And it has plunged many, many, many lives into darkness. That has shipwrecked many, many lives. James tells us, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Just another way of saying you can't serve both God and money. You can't serve God and possessions. You can't serve God and the treasures of earth. Not that you should not. Not that you must not. But that you cannot. You cannot. Your affections for one will displace your affections for the other. James goes on to say, Or do you not suppose... As the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. Friends, behind Jesus' words, you cannot serve God and money, is the heart of a jealous God. It's the heart of a jealous bridegroom for his bride. Just as every single husband in here would be jealous if his bride ran off with other lovers. So, our bridegroom is jealous for the affections of our heart. He says, you can't serve both. And so he draws a line in the sand and he says, choose this day whom you'll serve. But you can't serve both with undivided devotion. Friends, money is a great servant, but it makes for a terrible master. Money's a great servant, but it makes for a terrible, terrible master. Let me illustrate this for you as we bring the plane down to land here. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story of a farmer who one afternoon reported to his wife with great joy that their best cow had given birth to two twin calves, one red and one white. He said to his wife, You know I suddenly had this feeling and this impulse that we must dedicate one of these calves to the Lord. Noble, right? Admirable. We'll bring them up together, we'll raise them together, and then when the time comes, we'll sell one and keep the proceeds, and we'll sell the other and we'll give the proceeds to the Lord's work. Sounds noble. When his wife asked him which he was planning to dedicate to the Lord, he replied, here's where we begin to derail, friends. His reply was, there's no need to worry about that now. We'll treat them both in the same way, and then when the time comes, we will decide. 
A few months later, the farmer entered the kitchen looking very miserable and unhappy. When his wife asked him what was troubling him, he answered, I have very bad news for you, dear. The Lord's calf is dead. She replies and says, but I thought you had not decided which was to be the Lord's calf. Oh, yes, he said, I had always decided it was to be the white one. And the white one has died. Friends, we might chuckle at the story, but God forbid we would laugh at ourselves. God forbid that we would laugh at ourselves. It's always the Lord's calf that dies. Unless we're clear about our service to him and about the true nature of our possessions. They're only on loan. We own nothing. We're simply stewards of what God has temporarily placed under our stewardship. And he can call us to account at any given time. You see, either God owns you and you serve him, or your possessions own you and you serve them. So ask yourself this question, friends. Can anything be more grievous to the heart of God who has redeemed us from the slavery of sin, united us to Christ, and given us all things richly to enjoy than to take the name of God upon us, to be called by his name, and then to demonstrate by every action and every decision of life that we actually serve created things? Could anything, could anything be more grievous to the heart of our Father who is jealous for you? He's jealous for your affections. The question is, who or what will you serve? We can't maintain undivided allegiance to God when we're serving our material gods. And so, friends, let me ask you again, how's your vision? How's your vision? Is it clear? Is it single? Is it generous? Or is it bad? Is it stingy? Is it greedy? Is it white-knuckled to the things of earth? Choose this day whom you'll serve.